take notes, keep that, whatever you want to, whatever you want to do with that. But like I said, we've been in Genesis, and this has been one of the most challenging books that we have done, just because of several things that take place, uh, several things that are kind of that exist between us and uh, Genesis. And so I want to talk a little bit about. Um, and so, for some of you, this may sound like a um, may sound like a broken record, but I want to talk a little bit about what this thing is, what we believe this this book is, um, how we go about interpreting it, and then and then I want to talk just briefly about the purpose of Genesis, and then walk through Genesis one through twenty one is my goal tonight. So before I do that, let me let me open in prayer. God, we thank you for another night that we can be together, that we can open your word, that we can come, and Lord, I know, I know that there is so many things going through our minds, um, beginning of school, new beginnings that are happening, challenges that, that took place over, over the break, and things that we're wrestling with, God, I pray that, not that we would completely disconnect from those things, God, but I pray that we would be able to see see those things in light of you um, tonight. I pray that we would be able to give those things to you um, as we uh, are here and present. God, I pray that you would speak and that your, your voice would be loudest. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what we believe about this book, we believe essentially two big things. Um, two things that, that are both make it uh, this book awesome, but also make this book challenging to understand. Okay, so the first thing is we believe that it is divinely inspired. Okay, we believe this book is divinely inspired. We believe that it's a spiritual book, um, truly. So we believe it was written over a period of 1,500 years to about 40 different authors, by about 40 different authors, um, in several different countries, all telling one unified story that points to Jesus. So the reason, the reason I, I would say that that's divinely inspired is because none of these authors conspired together. None of these authors could have. Like this, this thing, the way it's woven together, the way, it, the way Genesis connects with other books that, that were written centuries later, is th there's no other way to describe it other than divinely inspired. So we also believe that this book accurately divinely and with great authority describes who God is, um, His purpose for us, and all of creation. And therefore, it tells us how we can live, and it, and it has guidance and direction for our life. And so, um, this book has, a, has the ability to make a profound influence on our life, to make profound changes in us. Um, the, the Bible talks about it being alive and active, Living and active. What book is living and active? And, and so, if you've ever read the Bible and something's jumped out of you or something's touched you or somehow you've had a greater grasp of God or, or it's changed you in any way, that, that, is, that is because it is a spiritual book. It is divinely inspired. But what makes it challenging, though, is you and I can't manipulate it. You and I can't determine... We don't get to determine what it means. It's it's gift to us. It is something that is, um, it's it, it is on its own. It stands on its own, and so 
when God is revealing it to us, it, it is a revelation to us. It's not something we get to manipulate and control, which makes it a little bit of a challenge. The other, the other thing we believe about this book is that it was written in history. Written in real history. It's historical. So each author who wrote it was writing to a real audience uh, for a real purpose, dealing with real circumstances. And so therefore it's up to us to try to understand what it meant to them. So it's historical because not only um, that only by learning and understanding it on its terms can we understand what it means. So the reason that that makes it challenging is because there's at least 2,000 years and sometimes up to 3,500 years because we believe most likely Genesis would have been written around 3,500 years ago. And so um, if you remember back in the first semester, if you were here, we talked about, we showed a picture of 300 years ago. So imagine life 300 years ago. It seems like forever. What a different world. I'm talking about in this country. Such a different world. The way people thought, the way, what, what motivated them, the way they interacted and went about life, the way they did everyday life, so different than today. Okay, so now add a zero onto that thing. And all of a sudden, and, and then jump to another continent on the other, on the other side of the world, and all of a sudden you, you, you start to get a grasp for the distance between us and the original audience. So what makes it challenging is to go, okay, how do we, how do we even determine what somebody 3,500 years ago was writing and, and you know, what the audience back then understood? And so that, that becomes part of the challenge. But there are resources and tools and ways in which you can go about understanding it. But those two things, the fact that it's divinely inspired, the fact that it's written in real history, is what makes this book truly unique and one of a kind. There's nothing like it. So how do we interpret it? Well, we interpret it by asking really one, one basic question, a hard question to answer, but one simple question, which is, what, is, what, what was the author's intended meaning? So in, we, we, we've talked about this card, and if you're new here, definitely grab one of these. We have some on different tables sitting around, but this is a really helpful picture of the process that we go through when we interpret the Bible. Because I, so I don't know if, what kind of church you guys grew up in, if they explained this process to you, or if somebody just got up and read the Bible and told you what it meant. And so you, you never really had to, to wrestle with, well, how do, how do I know what it means? He told me what it means, so I guess that's what it means. So how do we do this? Well, we just, we just pick it up and we just decide what it means. Is that how we interpret a Bible, and that's, we don't believe that's a, a, the best way to interpret the Bible. In fact, that's, that's the easiest way to take it out of context. And so, we think there's a process to go through, and the process is understanding what did it mean to them? What was the author's intended meaning? And we have to start there before we go anywhere else. And from there we can go, so then what did it, what did it mean? What does it mean? If it, that's what it meant to them, okay, what's the principle or what's being taught that, that kind of applies to all people at all times? And then now, okay, how does that apply to us today in 2019 in Oklahoma, America? So there is a process that we go through that we believe is super helpful. And I encourage you to grab one of these and slip it in your Bible. And every time you go out to read it, to, to take it out and look at it, to remind yourself that, that this is a process in which we go through to understand what's going on here. So 
What about Genesis? So now we can peer into this book Genesis and go, okay, so Genesis was written 3,500 years ago, and it had, a, it had an intention. The author who wrote it had a plan, had a purpose for writing it. What was that purpose? So we talked about how Genesis is not biographical. So Genesis was not written to give um, a biographical account of the origin of humanity. Uh, one, of this, one of you people, Rachel, was telling me about a, a friend who had a, has a literature class. And the first day of this literature class, the teacher tells everybody to open up the Bibles to Genesis 1 and 2. This happened this past week, I believe. Some of you might even be in that class. Um, open up to Genesis 1 and 2. And let's find some contradictions. So if you, if you, if you see the, the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 as to give a scientific account of how everything came, came, to about, came about or, how, or a biological account of the origin of humanity, then you are going to find errors all over the place because it is confusing as can be. If that's, if that's what you're going to it for. But it's, it's, it's interesting that a literature professor, I think, broke like the basic rule of, of literature, which is to understand the context. Never, Genesis was never intended to be a scientific account. It never was. It never was intended to be a biological account. Um, so it's not that. It's not, a, it's not moralistic lessons. Gen, Genesis is not a, uh, a group of stories about great people of old that we should try to be like. You know, faithful father Abraham, you should, you know, he's a great dude. Joseph, he was such an awesome dude, you know. He, he fled in temptation, he was patient in the midst of trial, we should all try to be like Joseph. No, that's not the point of Genesis either. The author makes it very clear that's not the point because all these heroes keep making mistakes. And there seems to be a bigger thing happening that's moving along that isn't about any one hero or one person, or even their morals. We also talk about that it's not just purely history, either. That Genesis isn't a, okay, this is what happened, and then this happened. Let me just give you the step-by-step, like like as if you, somebody was filming it with a recorder, or with a camera. That's not, that's not it either. That, That doesn't, that wouldn't make sense. If so, there's a large gaps missing. We talked about how from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6 is about 2,000 years of history. From Adam to Noah. And then from Noah to Abraham is about 2,000 years of history. Okay, So from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 12 represents around 4,000 years. And yet it's only 12 chapters of the whole Bible. So here's what that looks like. So this... Is this is four thousand years, and this is two thousand years. So from from Abraham through the end of the New Testament is roughly two thousand years. So God isn't didn't do a really good job of recounting history if the point of Genesis was is purely historical. But there does seem to be some his, history involved. There, it, it is moving on a time scale. There is. There is something happening. It's following a family. And so we landed on this idea of it being covenantal history. 
covenantal history. So a covenant is a relationship or a partnership built on promises and commitments. And so God establishes this covenant with the people of Israel. And so Genesis is written to Israel to describe when and why and how he established this covenant with them. So that's the point. So you, you have to picture um, the people of Israel. When, when, when I believe Moses was, he's the best candidate for the author of this. The, um, the Bible itself doesn't tell us who the author is. Most have always believed that it was Moses. So Moses is writing to the people of Israel coming out of slavery to help them understand their, their covenant relationship with the God who is leading the way. And so he is, he is describing this, this covenant to them. So in Genesis, we see this bigger picture happening. God has a purpose. God chooses them for a reason. And so I want to get into, kind of now I want to kind of walk through the chapters. And so, you know, the, the book of Genesis, God is revealing Himself as this sovereign and sustaining Creator of all things. And Israel as the people He chooses to bless all people. Okay. Not because they were some amazing group of people, and it, in, the Bible even says this, God says, I chose you because I chose you. Not because of you, I, I just decided to choose you. And for some of us, that might, that might make you uncomfortable. Like it, it would be easier to go, they were just really, really faithful people. That's why God chose them, because they're really, really moral and they're really, really good, and he knew that they would be loyal to him. No. If you, if you, if you know much about the, the story of the Old Testament, you know that over and over and over they are not faithful. They are not loyal. They bail on him constantly. They forget his covenant with them constantly. They disobey him constantly. They worship other idols throughout the whole thing. So that's not it. God says, I chose you because I chose you. He has a sovereign purpose through it all. So in Genesis 1 and 2, go ahead and turn there. Genesis 1 and 2, I want you to kind of look at it as I'm talking about it. Chapters 1 and 2. Both chapters written with, with, with a different kind of style and, and, and maybe purpose involved. Um, but what we see happening in chapters 1 and 2 is God is bringing order out of chaos to the cosmos, to, to everything that existed. Bringing order out of chaos. That, then He establishes functional existence. And we talked about this idea that when you and I, when you and I come to Genesis, this is, this is something all of us do. We come with like modern science questions of, of our origin, of like, um, you know, modern cosmology. How did we begin? When did we begin? How did it all begin? Where did we come from? We ask these questions, right? We, we want to know, like, when did it happen? Is it a literal six days? Is, it, is, that, is that a period of time? Is it millions and billions of years? And when? Like, when did God start it? And how did He, start, how did he form the material world? And so we come with all these questions, but what we talked about was... Um, from everything we can understand about people living 3,500 years ago in the Mesopotamia or, or Egypt or Near Eastern people, they weren't asking the same questions we're asking. 
They're asking different questions. They're asking questions about purpose. So, like, like who, who is this God that is, that is in charge of all things? And, and who am I? And what, why do we exist? They're asking those kinds of questions. And so, the author is answering those questions in, in, in Genesis. And he's describing a functional existence. And so, he's establishing the foundation of things like time and weather and food and rhythms so that life can flourish. And then he fills these environments with, with life and tells them to, to fill, in, fill, fill the earth. And then he creates us, and he creates us as image bearers. He sets us apart. There's, there's, a, there's a uniqueness to, to us that, unlike any other creation. And he enlists us to partner with him to rule and subdue the earth for his glory. To represent his ways... Um, to reflect His character and to stay in relationship with Him in order to do that. That's, that's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. And then, and then He, it says, He does all this. Everything He makes is good and is right and has purpose. And He rules and He reigns and He sustains over, over all of it. So that's Genesis 1 and 2. And then we get to Genesis 3 and 4 and we see a little bit of a, of a change, a, a shift in focus. So look at chapter 3 and 4. We see the fall happening. We see sin entering into the picture. And he describes something very interesting about humanity and a pattern that, that every beating heart has ever experienced. And so he, he uses these like literary devices like the word see or saw. If you notice in chapter 1, it says, and God saw that it was good. He says it like seven or eight, seven times after each day. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And every time God sees something that is good, He chooses to give to it and bless it. Okay? That's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, humanity sees what's good to their eyes. And guess what they do? Take, take and eat, and take and devour self, for selfish purposes. So, so they introduce this pattern that seems to um, begin there and run throughout all of the scriptures and run into every single one of our lives. That when we see what is good in our eyes, we take it. We take what's given to us and we use it for our own purposes. And this thing called sin is a really big deal. And so in chapters 3 and 4, you see this happening. Sin causes um, spiritual and physical distance between God and humanity. And God tells them death is imminent. And then in the very next chapter, death happens in their own family. And it almost, it, it looks kind of like, what's the big deal? I mean, so we ate some fruit you told us not to eat. I mean, sorry. I mean, okay, we won't do it again. And God is, what God is showing is like, no, this is a big deal. So you, you, just, you just allowed sin to enter into this picture. And, it, and, it, and it, it picks up speed really quick. It gets out of hand because in the very next chapter, their sons are killing each other. So that's, that's what God is showing. This sin enters the picture 
Murder happens in families. And then we, we, we fast forward, and it just keeps going. So I, like, I, I think it's helpful for me to sum up Genesis 1 and 2 with Genesis 3 and 4 as dignity and depravity. As God is um, describing and showing us who we are in relationship to Him and each other, you see dignity. You see God creating us in His image. As image bearers, all of us are created to, to represent and to reflect God, to like um, be a mirror that points up back to Him. Now, every single one of us in here, every single person that's ever been created, every, every, that's ever been born, so every, every person on this earth has dignity because of who made them, because of whose image they're in. So it's an incredible thing. So we love people. We don't, we don't love people because of what they do or, or, or how they look or what they, can, what they can accomplish for us, but we love them and we, we treat them with dignity because of the very one that made them and, and who they reflect and who they represent. But we also see very, very, in very real terms that every single person has depravity within us, this, this sin nature that exists. And so this is a very helpful thing to keep in mind as we think about our relationship with God and then our relationship with others. There's dignity, but there's depravity. There's something that exists that cannot be overturned. This sin that happens that, that separates us from God it cannot be overcome by our own effort or by sincerity or by simply being born in Texas. It's true. Um, or the Midwest or the Bible Belt or if you, you went to church camp once when you were young or if you raised your hand at some church function. That's, sin, doesn't, sin isn't overcome by you raising a hand. Something had to be done. Something had to be sacrificed. Something had to be paid in order to, to, to make, this, to make this, um, this relationship reconciled with God. So chapters 5 through 11 in Genesis show us and, and it describes a need for a covenant people. A covenant people that God can be in relationship with that will, that will follow and obey him. So chapter 5 is really just a uh, genealogy of from Adam to Noah. And then we get to chapter 6. And I want you to look at chapter 6, verse, um, verse 5. And specifically, the line where it describes the culmination of sin that's happened. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. So in, ch in chapter 3, it's causing separation between God and, and humanity. In chapter 4, it's murder. And by chapter 6, every thought and intention of man is evil continually. God is, God is showing very, very real terms how fast this thing gets out of control. So the rest of 6, and, six through 9 is... is is God bringing judgment on humanity, the flood, and then God, God making a promise and a covenant to never do it again through a flood. Chapters 10 and 11 
is another genealogy from Noah to Abraham, and then a quick, quick story about a tower that, um, that I believe is there to help us see the pride and the arrogance and even the diminishing of God by humanity. And so, then we get to chapter 12, and it seems like a page is turned, a major page is turned, and where before we are looking at broad strokes of history, and God is selecting very, uh, just a few stories to kind of help us see what's happening. In chapter 12, we zoom in to this one man who lived in this pagan country, who he calls out and, and makes a covenant promise with. So this distance that's between us, God overcomes by coming down and, and, and making a covenant with this man, Abraham. So turn to chapter 12. I want you to read the first couple verses. And the Lord said to Abram, um, Go out from your land and your relatives and your father's house and take the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God says I'm, to Abram, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into a nation. And I'm going to give you a great name. And so for the next several chapters, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way through to... 20, you see nothing but obstacles getting in the way of this. So, God shows them the land, and then they, him and his nephew Lot, kind of separate, and then there's these other kings that are at war, and they come in, and they they uh, take over the, the city that Lot's living in and, and, in, and Lot and his family get taken captive, and so Abram has to go and rescue his Right, and then make this these treaties and these covenants with. So there's just constant turmoil in the land, and obstacles continually. And God continues to step in. And then when it comes to making them into a great nation, Abram and Sarah are old, and beyond. And and Sarah is barren. Obstacle number one. So Sarah takes matters in her own hands and says, "Hey, take my servant Hagar." And maybe you can make a family through her. Maybe I can have a family through her. And even though God never tells him to do that, Abram, it says, he listens to Sarah instead of God. And he has a son. And, and what do you know? We get pregnant. And yes, finally we have a son. And God says, nope, that's not him. That's not who I'm going to bless through. And so God overcomes the obstacle there. And then, and then Abram gets scared again the second time, and he gives Sarah away as his sister to King Abimelech. And God intervenes and overcomes this obstacle and protects Sarah. And God finally, His promise comes true, and He finally um, gives a son, Isaac, through Sarah. So this promised son enters into the picture. Okay? And... In, in her old, old age. And then, and then something changes. In chapter 22, which is what we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight talking about, God all of a sudden becomes the obstacle to the promise that He makes to Abram. So, 
we know what he does with other obstacles. What happens when God becomes the obstacle to the promise he gives Abram? And that's what we're going to spend the second half talking about. So go ahead and take a break. If you need to use a restroom, it's in that through the kitchen. And Drew will get up here in just a minute. All right. Good to see you guys tonight. Be back here with you. Go ahead and go to Genesis 22 in your Bibles. That's where, uh, that's where we'll be camping out here for the next 20-25 minutes. Um, we've said this uh, over and over again, I think Scott hit on it, but that the purpose of the covenant, the, one of the major purposes of the covenant that God makes with Abraham and his people is, um, is revelatory in nature. That is, it is designed to reveal God, His character, and His nature by the way He interacts with Abraham and his descendants. So when you see Him interact, when the world sees that, they get to know what God is like. And so as the story moves along with Abraham, what you'll see is this really interesting thing because remember, Abraham, we're going to talk about this several times tonight, Abraham did not know about this God until he just showed up in the land of Ur and called Abram at that time to start to follow him. And so Abraham is learning things about him as he goes. Um, He himself is um, having God's character and nature revealed to him. And so one of the things you'll see in the Abraham story is that new names for God pop up periodically from time to time in it that Abraham will give a new name to this God, kind of this compound name, um, combining two words together to describe an aspect of his character that he, that he may not have known before. Or God will give himself maybe uh, a, a name to Abraham so that he knows them. Um, sometimes it's not even Abraham. It's, uh, there's one in which uh, Hagar, his, um, the, Sarah's midwife or whatever that he, that he has Ishmael by, she calls God in chapter 16, chapter 16, um, El Roy, that is the God who sees me. Uh, she has this experience with him where she thinks that she's like all on her own and no one's going to take care of her. And God says, no, I, I've got you. And, and she realizes, oh, this is, this is not like a lot of other gods. This is a God who sees me in my trouble and who's able to take care of me. Um, there's another point in uh, chapter 17 where uh, God is referred to by Abraham as El Shaddai, that is God Almighty. Uh, this is a powerful God. This is a God who is able to do great and powerful things. And so as these uh, aspects of God's character are revealed, these new little names kind of get thrown on him. Well, there's one name that gets thrown, uh, that gets given to God right before this chapter starts. And, And it's 25 years into Abraham following this God uh, that, that he has started to see that over this quarter century, this God is a God that has been faithful to his word over and over again, consistent to his promises, and has held true to those things. And, and in chapter 21, right before this, is where Isaac is finally born, that God, that, that God has promised for so long that Abraham's been looking for. And, and uh, they're starting to kind of see fruit of blessing in Abraham's life, so much so that even like Gentile kings and rulers are coming to Abraham and saying, we can see that this God, whoever this may be, Elohim, El, this God is with you. He's blessing you. And so in this moment, uh, 
Abraham uses a new name to describe God, and that name is, let's say I wrote it down, I want to make sure I got it right, El Olam. El Olam, the meaning, you'll see actually it's translated in Genesis 21:33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called out there on the name of Yahweh, here it is, the everlasting God. That's El Olam, or the enduring God, the God who endures. Called out on the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. What Abraham is getting at with this, word, with this name for him is that this is a God who is faithful over the long haul. That he, he sticks with his word, he sticks by me through it all, through this, this whole time he's been true, he's been faithful, he's been real. And you can see that Abraham is at a point where he is experiencing a level of stability and security in his relationship with this God, this enduring God. And, and it's so uh, ironic, I guess, that that is the name that Abraham gives to God, describing his great stability, because in the very next couple verses, God goes and wrecks all of that stability that Abraham thinks he has, or, or I, I would say rightfully has, but Abraham's going to start to wonder here for a bit in the next couple verses. Chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now this story is one, they, they say, for if you go back as far as commentaries on the scriptures have been written, this is a story that has intrigued commenta uh, commentators and intrigued scholars um, from the beginning. Uh, one is because it's kind of a crucial text in the Abraham story. But I, I think the reason it is so intriguing to them back then and even to us today is because there is this profound amount of drama in this story and a profound amount of shock. The shocking nature of the request that God would make this of Abraham. Uh, that he wants him to go and actually offer a child sacrifice to his people. Now, Abraham would have felt this shock, and he would have felt this drama like we do, but he would have felt it for probably different reasons than we feel it when we first read this story. First of all, this idea of a God asking for a child sacrifice would not have been crazy to Abraham. That wouldn't have been like mind-blowing, and man, I would never expect that. No, that's, that's somewhat par for the course in this part of the world during this time. The Canaanites, in whose land Abraham is kind of dwelling, um, the Canaanites just kind of assumed that the God of fertility um, was sort of entitled to a portion of what he had been giving you. Whether he was helping you um, be fertile in raising crops, you've you got to give him a little bit of that back. Or whether it's fertility in livestock, your livestock's going, all right, you owe him some of that. Or it's children, okay, you owe him some of that. And, and they just kind of expected that. That wasn't crazy to then give back a portion of what you've been given, even if that is one of your own children. We have documents uh, from right around this time out of northern Africa, um, so nearby this area, out of northern Africa, that outline and describe the, the ritual of child sacrifice as a means of securing greater fertility in the future. 
Okay, yes, I'll give up one of my sons for this with the hope that this pleases the gods and they'll give me more sons. And so that was kind of expected. When you read through the Old Testament, repeatedly in different times throughout Israel's history, you see harsh commands against God's people practicing uh, child sacrifice, speaking out against it, which means if the prophets are showing up and saying you need to not do this, that implies to us that what? Some of them at least are doing it. We, we know that some of the kings did it. And, and so that means this, this practice continued on for years, and, and the Bible continually speaks out against it. That's one of the reasons that this is so shocking to us, because we know, like the rest of the story, we know that the God described in this Bible abhors the idea of child sacrifice, speaks against it, condemns it over and over again. And so when we read this, we go, whoa, whoa, whoa that, that does not make sense that he would say this when we know all these things about him. Now, Abraham doesn't know all these things about him. H how does Abraham know that this God is any different than all the other gods that expect child sacrifice? So he probably would not have been shocked by the very idea that there would be an asking for the sacrifice of his son, um, though the, the, there would be some other shock to it, just the idea of losing his son. Um, and there is the drama, but for us the drama of a story like this is, man, could you imagine having to like murder your own son, your own kid? Could you imagine the emotional turmoil of having to go through this? Hear me, that's there for Abraham. He's, he's a human being. He's a father just like anybody else, so that's there. But the drama for Abraham is actually bigger than that. There's a much larger issue even than the loss of a son that is working its way out in here. And, and this is hinted at by the way Isaac is described in verse 2. Take your, he says this, take your son, comma, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, when you read this story, every time in Genesis 22, when God references Isaac as Abraham's son, he says it that way. Take your son, your only son. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son. You came to give me your son, your only, every time he does it. Now that ought to, whenever you're studying the Bible, that ought to, make you kind of sit up and, and take notice. When you see a phrase that gets repeated over and over again, one that seems kind of out of place, why not just say your son? And it says, it says, your son, your only son, every time. Now, there's another thing that ought to make your ears perk up when you hear him say, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice it to me. What, what would that be? Okay, important. But, but if he says, Isaac is your only son, what's wrong with that phrase? Ishmael. Isaac's not his only son. So, so then why does every time he say this, he emphasizes your son, your only son? It's because Isaac is the only son of the promise. Isaac is the one that God has promised that it would be through him that Abraham would become a great nation. That it would be through him that he would bless the whole earth and bless Abraham and his family and then, you know, bless the earth through Abraham's family. It would be Isaac and his descendants that would then take the land that was promised to him. And so, here's the bigger drama. If Isaac dies, so does every bit of the promise that God has made to him. Everything that God has been saying to Abraham this, this whole time all falls apart if he goes and kills Isaac. And so the bigger drama is not just for Abraham, man, it's going to be um, awful to have to sacrifice my son. That's totally there. But the bigger thing is 
is this God that I've just devoted a quarter century of my life to, is he faithful to what he's told me to do? Or is he faithful to what he said he'll do for me? See, it, the gods back then were, were a fickle group. You, you never knew when one of them might change their mind. You never knew what exactly pleased them and what exactly didn't. And so Abraham has to have at least a moment in here where he goes, is this, is this some uh, mischievous, elaborate, cosmological prank that's been played on me for the last 25 years by some wicked, like, demon-type God that's been messing with me? That's got to be there. And, and he's got to be wondering that because everything falls apart if Isaac um, is killed off. Verse 3, though. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, um, if Abraham has these questions, which I'm, I'm positive he does at some point, it doesn't really show it in here. The text just kind of matter-of-factly gets to it. So Abraham, the next morning, gets up and heads out on the journey. It, it does not even say to us whether or not, um, like, how this goes down with Sarah, his wife, or, or whether he even tells Sarah. Like, what does that conversation even look like? Hey, babe, Isaac and I are going to go head out for a few days. Where are you going? Camping? Bonfire? Yeah, like, what do you, what do you even say in that moment um, to, your, to your wife? We don't know if Abraham even describes this. We just know he heads out on this journey. But there are a couple of questions that are worth asking up to this point in the text. The first big one that, we've been, that, that needs to be wrestled with is, why does God ask for this? Why does God do this in the first place? All right, but there are two more that have come up in this last few verses. One is this one. Um, why does God call him to go on a three-day journey to do this? What does he say? I want you to go to the area of Moriah, three days distance away, to go do this. Well, why can't this just be done right there? Why can't this just be done like, you know, I, I get maybe you don't want to do it where you're living, but like a mile away or something like that. Why does he have to go on this long journey in order to be able to do that? That only makes it worse, by the way, because you can't, you have no time to like, it's not like, or you, it's, it's not like you could just kind of make a snap decision and go through it. You have three days to deliberate on this, to think on this. And then the other question is, what's with Abraham's answer or his statement to the young men that he brings along with him? In verse Five, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We'll come back. What's Abraham doing when he says that? Is that just like wishful thinking, hoping against hope that maybe something's going to change and I get to come back? Is, or is he just like, you know, not wanting to say the truth in front of Isaac and these young men? I'm going to go slaughter my son over there. And so he just says, hey, we're going to go over there. We're, we're, we're going to come back. Those are questions that are worth answering, but not yet. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, 
And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. Another interesting statement there to end. God will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Does, does Isaac resist in this moment? Does, he, does, does Abraham have to fight his son? We, we don't actually know how old Isaac is. Um, people just take guesses at this. He's old enough to carry the wood, old enough to have a conversation, but we, we don't know. Does Abraham have to fight? Or does, he, does he go willingly? What, what happens here? But, but whatever it is, he binds up Isaac and lays him on the altar there. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Anytime you see somebody's name repeated twice, that's like um, exclamation point. Got to get your attention. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? From Acts 9. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. So, Here Abraham is, he binds up his son, he lays him on the altar, and he's just about ready to slit Isaac's throat when all of a sudden a voice calls out. God steps in and does what Abraham has been hoping for this whole time. He provides. He says, stop. And he provides another sacrifice to be in Isaac's place. And so we see Abraham giving another name, but this one's not to God himself. This is to the place. He calls it Yahweh Yireh, or, or you've heard it probably pronounced or mispronounced, Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord provides. Actually, the, the word is sees. God sees. It's, it's like when, you, when someone asks you to take care of something, and you say, don't worry about it, I'll see to it, or I'll see that it's done. That's the same kind of idea that's being used here. God is a God that sees to it. He sees things done. He makes sure things are taken care of. And he took care of me. He provided for me. But this still leaves us with these three questions from the text. Why does God ask for a test like this? And why does God say that it has to happen three days away? And uh, why does Uh, why does Abraham answer in the way that he does or state this to those guys? Hey, we'll be back in just a little bit. I want to answer those in kind of a slightly different order. I do want to start with the big one first. Why does God use this test of all things to test him? Why not um, give all your possessions away, Abraham? 
Why not? I want you to move to another land now that you don't know and, and, and pull up all your roots and go there. Why is it specifically this idea of sacrificing his son Isaac? There are a number of options that people have thrown out over the centuries as to why God would do this. Um, some people think that it's a way of basically showing the Israelites from here on out that God is against uh, child sacrifice. By the way, for anyone who thinks it, the one time Abraham thought it, that it was happening, God shut it down. So let everybody know that child sacrifice is not what God's after. That's what a lot of people think it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's really it. Some people think that this is a way of showing to the world around that Abraham, that God was right in choosing Abraham. This really is a man of faith. This really is a man of obedience. And so proving this to the world. Some people think that actually what this is is a way of kind of bringing Isaac in to this relationship with God. Isaac gets to experience the faithfulness and the provision of God like his father has ex been experiencing all these years. All these years. So now it's not just the God of Abraham, but it's the God of Abraham and of Isaac. And so that's what some people think. There are a number of options that get thrown out. The more I've read and studied and talked with people and reflected, I, I think that the most likely option is something different altogether. And, and it kind of has to do with the context. What, what Scott mentioned earlier. When you read through this story, Abraham's story, a long time ago, God promised to him that he was going to bless him, that he was going to make him fruitful, and that he would be a great nation, that he'd give him all these descendants, to give him this land. And time after time, what you see happening is Abraham not fully sure if God's going to come through on all of that, and so seeming to kind of take matters into his own hands. He ends up in Egypt, and yes, God said that he's going to bring me a son through Sarah, but I don't know about this. I think Sarah's pretty enough that King Pharaoh might actually murder me for her, and so instead he pretends that Sarah's his sister, and Sarah gets taken away from him into the harem of King Pharaoh. And at that point, the entire promise is in jeopardy. That's the obstacle, Scott mentioned, and God overcomes it and brings Sarah back to him. And then they decide to go about it their own way because, I mean, this, we're not having any kids, and let's face it, we're well past it. And so they do this thing with Hagar where they have Ishmael, and it creates kind of a, a feud there and creates all these problems, but God overcomes it and says, no, 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 it's not that. And there's Sarah's barrenness, and so, but God says, no, I'm going to fix it and do those things. There's actually another time where Abraham does exactly what he did with Pharaoh, only it's with King Abimelech and the Philistines. They move to the Philistines' land, and he thinks Abimelech's going to kill him, and so he tells Abimelech that Sarah's her sister. And and every time Abraham has tried to take matters into his own hands and God steps in and fixes it. I wonder if, I think, that what this whole thing about is about is God saying to Abraham, now Abraham, are you going to trust me to take care of this in spite of what everything looks like around you? Do you really believe that I will stay true to my promise even if, even if what I've called you to do looks like it's going to run completely counter to that? Looks like it might all fall apart as you try to do those things. I think he wants to see if he is willing to entrust this whole thing to God now. If he's willing to do this. And, and it appears that Abraham does. That Abraham is willing to trust God. That he really does believe that God is going to be faithful. Even if the situation that Abraham's in looks completely opposite of that. Looks like it's not. And, and the reason why is because of the answer to that other question. Why does Abraham say to the guys, hey, we'll come back? Because I think Abraham really believes it. I don't think he's just trying to hide the fact from Isaac that he's about to stick a knife in his throat. I don't think it's because he's just hopeful. and I think he really believes it. This is actually what the Bible tells us later. 
in Hebrews 11. Let me go there real quick. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is what the author of Hebrews says. The, the reason Abraham does this is he, he believes in this moment that God is going to raise Isaac back from the dead. Now, we don't have any record of like, the, the Bible says nothing about resurrection up to this point. And from what we know, there wasn't like a big belief in that back then. It's not like that was a big common thing. Um, so where does Abraham get this idea? I don't know if he gets it from him. I think all he knows is this. God has promised me that he is going to bless me through Isaac. God has been faithful all the way through, and now he's asked me to sacrifice Isaac. And so the only way Abraham can make this all fit together in his head is go, I guess he's going to bring him back to life after I do this. This is the only way I can see this working out, because I know that he's going to be true to his word. And so here we go. And, and I, I think that he actually goes just expecting that this is what is going to happen to him. Um, he knows that God is trustworthy, even in this moment of incredible, um, a situation that could bring incredible doubt. Uh, let me say this before we get to question number three. At some point in your life, more than likely, some point in your life, you will come to a point where God's commands or his leading or just like the situation, the circumstances that he's allowing you to go through in your life seem to run counter to his goodness, seem to run counter to what you feel like is the best for your life. Like if God was really, really had my best interest in mind, he would not call me to do this thing. If God really did love me and care for me, he would not allow me to go through this thing that I'm going through at this moment. Odds are every one of us will go through a moment or many moments like that in our life. And your ability to stay faithful to God, to obey and continue in commitment to him, will hinge in that moment on what you know about God and his character. Your ability to continue on hinges on what you know about him and his character. Um, I think of Matt whenever I think about this. Matt's not his real name, um, but Matt was a grad student here in Stillwater that I was meeting with for several years. He and I would get together for lunch or coffee and, and hang out, and, and Matt was a really good guy, and, and I really enjoyed times hanging out with him, but Matt had his struggles, struggled a fair amount with depression, with some fairly strong depression and some bits of anxiety in his life. Um, and I'm not sure if it was tied or connected to this, but, but one of the biggest things in Matt's life is um, him coming to grips during his years in high school that he did not have feelings for all the girls in school like all his friends had feelings for the girls in school. Um, that, that increasingly realizing that his attraction was for other men. So Matt had these feelings in him that ran so deep and felt so natural, and, and yet... Whenever he would come to this word here, in spite of what a lot of people tried to tell him, including a minister one time, tried to tell him that, no, no, this doesn't really speak against same-sex relationships. 
Um, in spite of that, whenever Matt opened up this word and read through it, he, he could see that this word, that this God speaks against those kind of relationships. Now, it, it wasn't a word against him. It wasn't condemning him for his feelings. Matt knew that. But he did know that it was calling him to not act out on those feelings, to not enter into those relationships. And in that period, Matt had a choice to make. In a time when, when let's be honest, the world and, and probably even a lot of people in the church would tell him, listen, a good and loving God would never call you to abstain from these feelings that are so natural inside of you would never call you to give up something that you feel so deeply and to work against those things. And Matt had to ask himself, do I believe that or do I believe that the God in this Bible is good and loving and has my best interest in mind? Even if it doesn't feel like it. Even if it's like Abraham going, I don't see how this works. I don't know why this is the way this is. I'm just going to trust that God's got something in mind. Matt had to do the same thing. I I don't know if he's going to miraculously take these feelings away from me or if he's just going to provide the friendships that I'm longing for within his church or if he's just going to sustain me in my singleness through this. But this is what I believe this says and I believe that this God is good and loving and has my best interests in mind even if it doesn't feel like it in this moment. I think about people in our church right now who have chosen, because Sunnybrook is undergoing this building campaign, trying to raise funds to to have an area where kids can come and learn more about Jesus because we don't really have a designated space for that. And so there are a number of people in our church right now who are giving above and beyond their means, giving in ways that common sense would tell them is foolish, is not very, uh, a very wise use of their money. And are giving that way um, in spite of the fact that it might be setting them back several years financially or hurting them even now a little bit. It might feel like that. Um, But they make that choice in spite of the fact that it, it looks crazy. They feel like God is leading them to make this decision. And they know this about God, that he is good and faithful and true. And that he has their best interests in mind, even if that doesn't look like what they think it looks like sometimes. And so they choose to do those things anyway. They choose to be faithful and obey. It is because of what they know about his character. They're trusting God's goodness even when it's difficult to perceive. And again, this ability comes from knowing who he is and what he's like. Knowing of his goodness and love for us. So here's the question. How do you get that? How do you be that kind of person that knows what God is like so much that even in the moments when it feels like he's against you, even in the moments when it feels like he's calling you to things that a good God would not call you to, like, how do you get to a point where you can trust his character enough to move forward in obedience? It comes in a number of different ways. It comes by looking back on all the ways he's been faithful to you before. It comes by looking through this and seeing what it says about his character and his actions in it. And it also comes from um, answering our third question. Why does God call Abraham to go three days' journey away to some other place away from him to sacrifice Isaac? Now, I don't know this for sure. Don't, don't put this down as 100% biblical fact, but I think he calls him to this place because the place that he calls Abraham to is historically significant calls him to the region of Moriah. And that name, that word, is only mentioned one other time in all of uh, the Old Testament. Moriah. It comes in 2 Chronicles 
where it says that Mount Moriah is the place that the temple was built on. You see, this is not the last time that God provided a substitute to be sacrificed for someone else on this mountain. This would actually become the major place where every day God provided atonement for his people's sins through animal sacrifices that were made there at the temple over and over and over again. And actually, in this same region of Moriah, if I'm right, if this is the Moriah that that Abraham's talking about, in this same region is the very place where God will do exactly what Abraham does, where he takes his son, his only son, whom he loves, and he goes to offer him as a sacrifice on that hill as a way of paying for yours and my sin, as a way of um, providing Yahweh Yireh, God provides, as providing the righteousness that you and I could never attain ourselves. To provide it for us so that we could know Him. 1 John 4.9 says this, In this the love of God was shown to us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He's kind of in the context of talking about enduring difficulties in this life and groaning, waiting for God to come back, how it's hard to go through this life sometimes as Christians, and it's, it's tough to do the right thing. But he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This, I think, is where trust and obedience in hard times comes from. If God loved me enough to sacrifice His only Son for me so that I might know Him, so that I might be with Him, to provide the righteousness that I could not have, then then how could I not trust this God to have my best interest in mind, to do what is best for me, to love me enough to see me through whatever difficult situation I'm in or whatever difficult situation he might call me to. I know this. In spite of what it looks like around me, in spite of what I feel, I know that this is a God who is good. And I know that because I can look to Mount Moriah and I can remember the sacrifice that he made for me on my behalf. This is where obedience in difficult times comes through. And this is um, the perspective that we want you to carry in life. This is a gospel-centered life that looks to the gospel, what Jesus did for me, to shape the way that I will live for the rest of my life. Um, Let me pray, and we'll be done. God, I sometimes give lip service, probably often give lip service to you and and to what you want us to do. I confess sometimes when the rubber hits the road, I don't want to do hard things. I don't want to do difficult things and and, or or when life is hard, I I question where you are, why you're allowing me to to struggle with things. I'm going to pray for us in this room that when we are in those moments, Lord, that you would cause our our minds, our eyes, our hearts to go back to um, you giving your son, your only son whom you loved for us. You would call the sacrifice of Jesus to mind so that we would know how great your love is for us and that you are a God who has um, your best interests in mind, but that that those things include our best interests, that, that we can be in on that, that we can be a part of that, 
and help us to be obedient and faithful in that. I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, be sure to, if you want to sign up for a retreat or if you've got questions, come ask us. If you're interested in getting an open group, come ask us. And anything else? The, the retreat sign-ups will end tonight. So I need to give hard numbers tomorrow morning. So if you, can't, if you don't sign up by tonight, then that's the last time.